Well, good morning, everybody. It is good of you to join us here at South Valley Community Church. We are in the middle, like a post-middle, the after-middle. We're in the after-middle of our, our apologetics conference. We hope you've enjoyed it so far. You have a real treat today. Uh, today, uh, Dr. Mike Lycona is joining us. He is a distinguished, he has a distinguished doctorate in New Testament. He is a specialist on the resurrection, and he has an organization called Risen Jesus, where he really helps people understand how the validity of the resurrection and other apologetic information is so important for us to know as people come to us asking questions about our faith. So won't you warmly welcome Mike Lycona. Thanks, brother. Good morning. Thank you. It's good to be with you all again. I was here four years ago, so I had a great time, and I was just uh, so pleased and thankful. Thanks for inviting me to, uh, to come back and speak with you. Well, we're going to be talking about the Gospels this morning, and I have a short, mm, probably a minute and a half video I'd like you to see. Few positions are better suited for impact and safety, and few people play safety better than the Ravens and Reed. I just saw the guy coming back. I was like, oh, this is it. This is that one hit. I'm sorry for him right now. So glad I don't have to do that for a living. That'd be rough. I've got a friend, his name's Mike DeVito. He played nine years in the NFL. He played for the Jets, then he played for the, uh, the Chiefs. And he retired, I think, about three years ago. Um, and he's, he was a lineman, and he's got all sorts of pains. He's had shoulder surgery, and he still says that shoulder just constantly hurts him, and he's awake and tumbling all throughout the whole night because, I mean, I'm just so glad. And that's with all the, all the padding that they wear, and all that padding is important. But, you know, the most, well, what's the most important piece of equipment you think they wear? The helmet. Because you get all those headshots, and you need protection against those headshots, right? If you don't have that protection, that can cost you your life. Why do we send our children off to university where they're going to get all kinds of shots on their heads? You know, Christianity isn't true. It's, the Bible's all kinds of errors and myths, and uh, science contradicts the Bible and all this stuff and without head protection. Most churches will send their kids off without head protection. Uh, thankfully, SVCC doesn't do that. I thank the Lord that every year for the last, I've heard it was like 20 years or more, SVCC has devoted a month 
to teaching Christian apologetics to prepare and provide some good answers to some uh, difficult objections to Christianity or provide evidence for Christianity, you are providing head protection, and not all churches do that. So congratulations. Really, I take my hat off to you, to you all. Yeah, go for it. Well, um, over the years, um, I've specialized in two areas. One is the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And then more recently, I've been spending a whole lot of time looking at issues related to the Gospels. Um, you know, what are some of the drawbacks or potential weaknesses with the Gospels? And how do we know if they are historically reliable? And over the years, I've had 34 public debates uh, with skeptics and Muslims. And um, I find that um, their objections to the Gospels typically can all be boiled down to five major objections. And so I put together this, this lecture that addresses those five major objections, and we call it the ABCs, Ds, and Es of defending the Gospels. And you'll see why I, I call it that in just a moment. So the As stand for authorship. And you find a lot of objections against the authorship. You can't trust the Gospels because we don't know who wrote them. And the reason we don't know is because it said that the oldest manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts we have of the Gospels, do not contain the name of the authors. So whereas we open up our Bibles and it says, the Gospel according to Matthew, Gospel according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John, they don't have those titles in our earliest manuscripts. Um, and so if the titles aren't there, and we, how do we know who wrote them? Maybe those titles were just added. They probably were added in the second century or sometime thereafter. So if that's the case, how do we know who wrote them? And if we don't know who wrote the Gospels, how do we know that they, we could trust them in any sense? I think that at first, that sounds like a legitimate, a decent uh, challenge to the Gospels. But as I've studied things and looked at not just the biblical literature, but also um, non-biblical and, and secular ancient literature, I found something very interesting in the, within the last few years. If I were to take all the biographies that were written in that period of anyone, let's just go back 150 years before Jesus, and then let's go all the way to 150 years after Jesus. Well, I'd be happy to expand it, but, but let's just take within that 300-year period. There are approximately 100, just a little less than 100 biographies written about anyone during that period of time. Would you like to know how many of those contained the name of the author in the title? Zero. None of them. What about the author's name in the, the, po the proem, the preface? None of, well, I should say one of them. One of them, The Passing of Peregrinus by Lucian of Samosata, written in the middle of the second century, and in there, the first sentence, he, he says, he identifies himself as Lucian, and he sends his greetings to the person he's sending the biography to. That's it. So if, you, if we're going to say you can't trust the Gospels because they're anonymous in a technical sense, that their names do not appear uh, in the Gospels, you're going to have to say that for virtually every other ancient biography. So how did, these ancient, how did the ancients come to know who wrote those biographies? Well, we don't know. They don't tell us. But we know that the ancients somehow knew who wrote them because they mentioned uh, the authors. For example, uh, Julius Caesar, he wrote his commentary on the Civil War. 
It's entirely anonymous. In fact, he wrote it entirely in the third person. Then you have Sallust and Livy, two of the Rome's greatest historians. And you won't find their names anywhere in the histori uh, histories that they wrote. Nowhere. And then there's Plutarch. Plut this is not the guy in the Hunger Games, by the way. This is the real Plutarch. Plutarch was born around the year 40. He died shortly after the year 120. And he wrote more than um, 60 biographies, of which 48 have survived. And a lot of what we know about the ancient world comes from Plutarch. His biographies, every last one of the 48 that we have that have survived, they're all anonymous in the same sense that the Gospels are. And yet you won't find a single classicist, especially a, a specialist in Plutarch, who questions whether Plutarch wrote them. So we don't know how they came to know it, but we know that somehow they knew it. Now, when it comes to Plutarch, the best evidence we have that Plutarch wrote those is what's called the Lamprius Catalog. Now, the Lamprius Catalog, we don't know exactly when it was written, but scholars think that it was written a minimum of 100 years, a century after Plutarch wrote. And that's the earliest. It could be as much as 200 years or even longer after Plutarch wrote. Oh, and by the way, it's falsely attributed to Plutarch's son. Oh, and it also contains a bunch of literature in it that's attributed to Plutarch that we know he didn't write. But despite that fact, every classicist out there who talks about Plutarch acknowledged that Plutarch wrote these. Why? Because despite its deficiencies, it's the evidence that we have that Plutarch wrote those biographies, and there are no competing accounts. In other words, there's no one out there who would say someone else wrote them. It's always attributed to Plutarch. So can we be absolutely certain that Plutarch wrote those? No. But it's probable that he did. The probability is high enough that we can say Plutarch wrote those. Now, when it comes to the Gospels, just to give you a little bit of idea of what we're looking at here, here are all the sources that mention the authorship of the Gospels within, let's say, probably the first 135 years. You've got all these sources. I know you can't read some of these because of the, uh, the font size, but I wanted to fit these, these on there. You start off with a guy named Papias, who wrote somewhere between the years 100 and 130, and he mentions the authorship of Matthew, Mark, and John. And then from there, it just keeps on going up. Um, but what's interesting about this, none of these sources are perfect, by the way. None of them are. You could find fault with, with any of them. But you still have every last one of these sources. It's unanimous that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote. Nobody says it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and George. All right, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's unanimous. And even after this, it's unanimous for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you have two people. Uh, one's definitely confused, and the other was, was certainly mistaken on attributing the Gospel of John to someone else. Other than that, it's always been unanimous, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we've got better evidence, even though scholars do question the authorship of the Gospels at times, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have far better evidence for the authorship of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Is it perfect? No, but it's far better than what you have for even the greatest ancient biographer, Plutarch, and for many other ancient sources. B, bias. They say you can't trust the Gospels because their authors were biased. 
Well, it's true. The authors of the Gospels were biased, no question about it. They also say that when you come to the Gospel of John, he states in there, I am writing these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So not only is John biased, he's writing with an agenda. He's writing so that we may believe. So you can say, well, he's biased, he has an agenda, it's propaganda. So you just can't believe it. Well, that's true, it is, he has an agenda. So let me ask you a question. What about this guy here, Gert Ludeman? He's an atheist New Testament scholar. And he's mentioning a book that he wrote on the resurrection of Jesus, and here's what he says. Its aim was to prove the non-historicity of the resurrection of Jesus and simultaneously to encourage Christians to change their faith accordingly. Is Ludeman biased? Does he have an agenda? I mean, he states it clearly, just as clearly as John does. I am writing these things so that you may not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Here's another one, Richard Dawkins. He's a militant atheist. Several years ago, he wrote a book titled The God Delusion. And in, in those pages, he wrote, if this book works as I intend, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. Is Dawkins biased? Yeah. Does he have an agenda? Well, it's crystal clear he has one. Does that mean he's wrong? Well, no, he's wrong because his arguments stink. And I just don't say that because I'm a biased Christian. Atheist philosophy, uh, philosopher of science uh, professor at Florida State University, Michael Roos, he read The God Delusion. Again, he's an atheist philosopher of science, a philosophy professor, and he, he, after reading he said that the arguments in that book, Dawkins' book, were so poor that it made him embarrassed to call himself an atheist. So, but we don't reject the, what they say because they're biased. We don't reject because they have an agenda. You look at what is said and you assess it to see if what they're saying is true. Something else. Would you say I'm, that you're not going to give any kind of credibility to a book written on the American Civil Rights Movement if it were written by an African-American historian? What about an account of the Holocaust written by a Jewish historian? Would you say that you can't trust it because the author is biased? Well, of course not. Could very well be that the African-American historian writing on the civil rights movement would be the very best historian to write on it. That the Jewish historian would be the very best historian to write on the Holocaust. Especially if they had been part of it and, and part of a concentration camp. Well, what if some of the gospel authors were eyewitnesses? Or what if they were, what if they were interviewing and got their information from eyewitnesses and those who knew them? Of course they're biased. It doesn't mean they're wrong. You have to look and see if there's that. Now, I wish that I had time to go into reasons why we can trust the Gospels. I can say I have a lecture. I've got some lectures on this. You can go to my YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, type in Mike Lacona. You'll see my YouTube channel come up. There's over 200 videos. Go to the playlist tab and then scroll down a little and you'll see the 10 top videos on the historical reliability of the Gospels. Now, I've got lectures, I've got debates on the topic on there, so you can view those. C, contradictions. 
This is probably the number one objection against the reliability of the Gospels. Now, um, there's a guy, he's a New Testament scholar, his name's Bart Ehrman. He's probably the most influential, skeptical New Testament scholar in the world. I've debated him six times. We've actually become friends. Um, and we get along pretty well, actually. And um, I mean, I'll tell him to his face that he's wrong. He tells me to my face that, I, that I'm wrong. And uh, we have very spirited debates, but, but we, we like, apparently we like each other. And um, so anyway, he's got this little shtick that he does when it comes to the Gospels. And he'll get to the part, he'll talk about how, you know, we want accounts that don't have any discrepancies, no differences. We want them to all be unified accounts. But what do we have when we come to the Gospels? Well, just look at the Passion scene. Was Jesus crucified after the Passover meal? like Matthew, Mark, and Luke have? Or was it before the Passover meal was celebrated like John has? Well, it depends which gospel you read. Was he crucified at 9 a.m. like Mark says, or was it sometime a little bit after noon, as John says? Depends which gospel you read. Did Jesus carry his cross all the way as it seems to be portrayed in John's gospel? Or did Simon of Cyrene come in and help him? It depends which gospel you read. He's crucified between two thieves. Did both thieves curse him, as Mark says, or did one thief repent, as Luke says? Well, it depends which gospel you read. Did the temple veil split before Jesus died, like Luke says, or was it after, like Matthew and Mark says? It depends which gospel you read. What about the resurrection narratives? Sunday morning. How many women went to the tomb? Were there multiple women, or was it just Mary Magdalene? Depends which gospel you read. When they got to the tomb, how many angels were there? One or two? It depends which gospel you read. When did, when did Jesus first appear to his group of male disciples? Was it, um, uh, where was it? Was it in Jerusalem or Galilee? It depends which gospel you read. How long was he with them? Did he rise from the dead, appear to everybody, and ascend on Easter, like Luke says, or was he there for a period of time? His other God. It depends which gospel you read. And by the time he's through all of these, the Christians in the room are saying, say it ain't so. It is so. And I'll tell you what, when I was looking at this myself, and I spent eight years looking at these gospel differences, um, I was reading the gospels in their original language, Greek. It really slowed me down and made me focus on various details. And when you're spending so much time in it, you start to see these differences, things that I never saw before. And every time I saw a difference, I marked it down and made a document, and that document grew to be more than 50 pages long. Now, I will tell you this, they're all in the minor details. All the differences are in the minor details. I ended up writing a book published by Oxford University Press that answers the question, why are there differences in the Gospels? The title, why are there differences in the Gospels? And um, so uh, I can't really go through all of that book in just a little bit of time that I have, but let me just give you what I think may be three important takeaways for you this morning. Number one, Keep the matter in perspective. Now, most historians of Jesus believe that Jesus was crucified in either April of 30 or April of 33. We don't know which one. It's about a 50-50 split of scholars. But let's just make it simple. Let's just say it's April of 30, since that's a round number. Now, if Jesus rose from the dead in April of 30, was Christianity true? Yeah. It was true in April of 30 if Jesus rose. In fact, let me, let me say this. There could be all sorts of errors and contradictions. There could be any objection you want, a problem of evil, whatever you want to come up with in terms of an objection against Christianity. If Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity's true, period. It's game, set, match. It's over. Discussion's over. Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity's true. 
So if Jesus rose from the dead in the year 30, Christianity's true. Was it still true in the year 35? What do you think? If Jesus rose in 30, was it still true in 35? How about 40, 45, 50? How about in the year 60? Was it still true in the year 60? Okay. Now, most scholars believe that Mark was the first gospel written, and he wrote somewhere between the years 65 and 70. Let's just call it 65. In the year 64, was Christianity still true if Jesus rose from the dead? All right, now, I don't believe that, that Mark is unreliable. I believe that Mark is quite reliable. And in fact, if you go to my website, risenjesus.com, and you look under, I think it's blogs, um, I have written an article that compares the reliability of Mark's gospel with Suetonius's life of Augustus, which is considered to be Suetonius's best biography. And Suetonius wrote more like modern biographers than anyone else in antiquity. And my conclusion is, is that Mark is every bit as reliable as Suetonius's life of Augustus, and I give reasons why. Okay? So I believe the Gospels are historically reliable. But let's just say, just for the sake of argument, that Mark had all sorts of problems with it, and he's unreliable. If Jesus rose from the dead, is Christianity still true? Yeah. So the question I have for you then is, why do we get so upset over if, if, if a skeptic brings up a, a difference, discrepancy between the Gospels that we may have problems at that moment resolving, reconciling? Why does it shake our faith so much? If Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true, period. So don't let these gospel differences bother you too much. That's number one thing. Number two. Oh, let me say something else. This is cool. The Titanic sinks a little over 100 years ago. Did you know that some of the eyewitnesses, the survivors, some said that the Titanic broke in half and then it sank, and others said, no, uh-uh, it went down intact. How do you get that wrong? I mean, this is the most terrifying night of your life. You're, you're out in a life raft and you're looking. Uh, reports were that the weather was clear, the sky was clear, there was no moon out, so the only light is coming from some stars and from a ship that's a little over 800 feet long. It's all lit up and people are screaming from it. Some say it broke in half, then sank. Others said, no, it went down in tank. I don't know how you get that wrong, but I'll tell you this. No one turned around and said, well, I guess we can't believe the Titanic sank. They just said, you know what? Some of those people, not all of them, but some of them, whoever it was, we don't know, but some of them got it wrong on a minor detail. So just keep it all in perspective. All right. Contradiction or difference, this is important. Now, if you look at it and you say, some said the Titanic broke in half, others said it went down intact. This is a contradiction. That cannot, this difference cannot be reconciled. Well, let's suppose I get home late tomorrow night. I walk in the door, and my wife's really excited. And I say, why are you so excited? Dog's jumping all over me, you know, like the dog typically does when I come home for a trip. And my wife's really excited. And I say, well, I understand why the dog's excited, but you're usually not this excited when I come home. And, and she says, well, you won't believe this. Half an hour ago, the doorbell rang. I was answering email at the computer. The doorbell rang. I came to the door, and there's this guy standing with this big check. And he said... I'm with Publishers Clearinghouse. You're now a millionaire. You won. I said, cool. 
I can return the check to SVCC. I don't need it. Okay. And then a half hour after that, I hear her talking to her brother on the phone, and she says, you won't believe this, but this, the doorbell rang. I was answering an email. Doorbell rang, and I went, and there's these two guys at the door, and one has this big check, and the other says, congratulations, you're a millionaire. You won Publishers Clearinghouse. Well, my, I, she gets off the phone. I would not say, you know, I don't believe Publishers Clearinghouse came by because you lied to me. You told your brother there were two people at the door. You told me there were only one. She said, I didn't say only one, but I only mentioned one. But I didn't say there was only one. I mentioned the one that I know that you would matter to you. <laughs> you know? Um, but I didn't say there was only one. That is a difference. It is not a contradiction. Now, let's look at just an account, the resurrection narrative. How many women went to the tomb? Well, you got Matthew and Mark say that there were one. Luke and John say there were two. Okay? Um, I think that what they're doing there is they're shining with their literary spotlight on the one that's doing the announcing. And as I looked very carefully through the ancient literature, and like Plutarch, I found 36 accounts in which Plutarch tells two or, in two or more of his biographies. And so you're able to compare how he tells the same story two or more times, two or more different times. And you find that the compositional device that he uses more than any of the others is literary spotlighting. It's when he knows that there are more people there, but he focuses his spotlight on the main character out of those, or the most important person. So he just doesn't mention the others, but he knows that they're there. So how many women were there? Well, you've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that there were multiple women, but John, he reports, he only mentions Mary Magdalene getting up and going to the tomb. But does that mean that John knew that, other, or was saying that other women weren't there? I don't think so. Because when Mary Magdalene sees the tombs empty, she runs back, she finds Peter and the beloved disciple, and she says, they've taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. Who's we? Certainly, you wouldn't think it's John and the beloved, or the beloved disciple and, and Peter, because, of course, they wouldn't know. They didn't even know the tomb was empty until Mary came in the room just a moment ago. She must be referring to the other women. And then John reports that Peter and the beloved disciple got up and they ran to the tomb and they found it as Mary had said. But Luke reports that Peter got up and ran to the tomb and found it as the women had said. So is it just Peter or was it Peter and the beloved disciple? Well, Luke doesn't say just Peter. He only mentions Peter. Notice though, it's 12 verses later in Luke's gospel that Luke reports Jesus appearing to the Emmaus disciples. And what you have in that, they're walking along the road, Jesus walks up, catches up to them, and he says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So he, he's gonna surprise them. He's, he's playing with them a little bit. It must have been fun. He rises from the dead, he says, oh, there are two of my disciples. Let's, let's play on them, play with them a little bit. So he walks up to him, keeps their eyes from recognizing him. And as they're talking, he says, why the long faces, guys? And they say to him, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened a few days ago? No. What? <laughs> well, there was this guy, Jesus. You know, we thought he was the Messiah, but he got crucified. But our women folk went to the tomb this morning, and they, it was empty, and they said they saw angels who said he'd risen from the dead. And then some of our own 
some of our own went to the tomb and found it as the women had said. Now, wait a minute, Luke, just 12 verses earlier, you said just Peter. No, I didn't say just Peter. I said Peter. I only mentioned Peter. But here I am. Obviously, I know there were others involved. But Luke, we don't do that, things like this in the 21st century. And it was something they did back then. And we do it sometimes today, even with the spotlighting. But do you see what they're doing? And then third, we need to keep in mind that the Gospels are ancient biographies. Now, why does this matter? Because ancient biographers operated by a few little different rules than modern biographers do. They had different objectives. Modern biographers try to show the development of the person that made them into who they are. What socioeconomic and education factors led to them becoming the kind of person? What kind of challenges did they face in life that strengthened them or that they had to overcome in order to become the person that they are? But you see, in antiquity, in antiquity, they looked at things and said, well, you know, um, we, we think that a person was born with a character, and it just, this particular character developed and matured in them over their years, but it wasn't external factors that developed this. They always had it. And so what the objective of an ancient biographer was, was to report the actions of a person and their words that illuminate the kind of person that they were. The reader would understand the kind of person, the kind of character that that person had. And so sometimes they were allowed to bend the details a little bit in order to make their points more clearly. Now, the best way I know how to explain this is to give a modern example. How many of you in here are married? Okay, quite a few of you. Well, you know exactly what I mean when I say there's the guy version of the story and a girl version. Now, it, it's kind of like this. Women like details, don't they? Lots of details. They want to know what happened. They want to tell you what happened, where it happened, when it happened, how it happened, why it happened, who was there, what they were doing, what they were saying, what they were thinking, what they were wearing, and what they were feeling. <laughs> Guys are different. We like bullet points. Get to the bottom line. The game's coming on in five minutes. We don't care about all these senseless, meaningless, irrelevant details that you ladies like. We just want the bottom line. And sometimes we will bend the details a little bit. Why? So that we don't have to give 10 minutes of background knowledge that the other guy doesn't care about. We will do it to make our points a little more clearly. Guys, do you know that most of us have been on the phone telling a story to a friend of ours of something that happened when our wives are in the background and they say, you know, it didn't happen that way, right? We're not trying to lie. We're not trying to deceive. We're just trying to give the person the, the, the degree of, of information that they want to hear. They don't want to hear all this other stuff. So see, the difference is guys just like the relevant details. Women want to talk about everything, and they want to tell you about it with the precision of a legal transcript. 
Now, I'm not saying that one way is better than the other. They both have their places, right? They both have their places. It's just, you know, who you're talking to at the time. Well, ancient biographers, a lot of times, not all the times, but a lot of times will give us the guy version of the story. In fact, when you come to the Gospels, Mark gives us the girl version. <laughs> Matthew tends to give us the guy version because Matthew abbreviates details some. So I'll just give you one example because I have to be wrapping this up. When, like, um, the story about um, Jesus cursing the fig tree is in both Mark and it's in Matthew. So Mark tells the story. Jesus comes in, it's Palm Sunday, and he, uh, he goes into the temple toward the end of the day, and he looks around, and then he leaves. And then he goes back to Bethany. And he's, he and his disciples spend the night in Bethany. And then the next morning, they are headed back into Jerusalem, and Jesus is hungry, and they see a fig tree. There's no figs on it. So Jesus curses the fig tree. And then they go into Jer Jerusalem, and that's when Jesus uh, sees the merchants and the money changers in the temple, and he overturns the table, and he chases those people out of there. This is Monday. End of Monday, he goes back, and they go back to uh, Bethany and on the Mount of Olives, and they spend the night there. Tuesday, they get up, they're headed back to Jerusalem, and they come to the fig tree, and Peter says, Lord, the tree that you cursed, look at it, it's withered and died. That's Mark. Matthew gives us the guy version. He, it's, um, so he gives us this guy version. So Sunday, it's the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. He goes in there, and he overturns the table in the temple. Well, remember, Mark, that's Monday. But Sunday, Matthew conflates. He combines both temple visits into one. And then Monday, he gets up, headed to Jerusalem, cursed the fig tree, it dies. That's it. It's the guy version. Now, I can see it now. Mark says to him, but Maddie, you know it didn't happen that way. You know what happened? He went in on Sunday, and he looked around, and he didn't come back until Monday, and that's when he overturned the tables. And, and the fig tree, Maddie, look what you did with that. He cursed it on Monday, and he didn't see it was dead until Tuesday. Maddie, you have really distorted. You have lied here. And Matthew looks at him and says, back off, Mark. You remind me of my wife. It's just the way things work this way. They, some of them didn't care about the precise details. They're interested in giving us the gist of the story. And I'm glad Matthew does it that way because Matthew includes a whole lot more in his gospel than Mark does. We learn more stories from Matthew than what we hear in Mark. Anyway, I'm out of time. I wish I could give you some more. But I hope this has been encouraging to you. Um, I do have the D's and the E's in my online version on uh, my YouTube channel. Anyway, let's pray. Thanks. Father, thank you so much for this group. Lord, I pray your richest blessings upon them. Thank you that you've given us some good documents with the Gospels that inform us a lot about your son Jesus and what he did for us and his teachings, teachings that we can live by, teachings that encourage us so that we can have eternal life and know the way of salvation. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Awesome.
Let's stand together. Uh, several years ago, uh, I came home. My wife was there, and I said, oh, uh, by the way, so-and-so had a baby. She goes, oh, really? Well, a boy or a girl? Um, do, do you know the name? Um, well, it was a baby. So I can, uh, I can understand a little bit uh, the difference between the information my wife is needing from me at times. Uh, but I, I so appreciate just the fact that um, every day is a school day when it comes to uh, uh, learning more about who God is and who he wants to be in our lives. And I just want to encourage you, whether you're here today and you've been a, a longtime follower of Jesus, or you're here and you're still trying to kind of figure this out, uh, I want you to continue to, to wrestle, never settle, and know uh, that at the end of the day, as we continue to learn about all of the aspects of, of things that we'll never completely learn until we see the face of Jesus, is that at this very moment, what we do know and we need to hold on to is that we serve a, a God who wants to be part of our lives at this very moment, he wants to be in your life. He's interested in you. He's interested in all of the, the, the things that, that you're interested in. He wants to be a part of the, the challenges and the struggles in your life. He, he's a very hands-on God. And so let's take that today and know how much Jesus loves you. And we also know the scripture tells us, well, how do I become a follower of Jesus if I confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that he is the resurrected Lord, then I will be saved. And you know, there are such simplicities of the gospel in how we become a follower of him. And so I want to encourage you today that maybe you're, it's time to take that step and, um, and pray, just simply just pray, God, I, if you are who you say you are, then, then I want to invite you into my life, and I want, to, and I know that I can't bridge the gap of my own sin, and so please do that. And so, if if you want to pray that with someone today, uh, our prayer counselors will be down in front. Grab one of us as pastors. We'd love to to walk through that with you and just continue that that journey and that discussion. And um, as always, right in front of you, there's those cards. If you're visiting for the first time, fill that card out, turn it in at the connect table as you leave. They want to give you a, a gift certificate to the Westside Grill, which is pretty awesome. If we could pray for you in any way, we have a, a prayer list that goes out every week. So you could fill that out and you could put that in the offering box, which is located on the back walls there. And that's also there if you would like, to, if you traditionally give your offering in person you can also uh, put your offering there in the box, too. So uh, we're so glad that you're here today. And for those that are watching uh, via streaming, we're, we're glad you're with us today. Uh, God loves you. And let me pray for you. God, thank you so much that you, you came on a rescue mission for us. You, you died on that cross, a horrible death, so that we can have life. And so we're grateful for that today, Lord, and we, we, uh, we receive that in our lives today, God, and uh, we love you, and we pray this in your name, amen. Join us next Sunday for Frank Turek as we close out our apologetics, and God bless you. Go have a donut.